since my baby left me Well, I found a new place to dwell Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street That heartbreak hotel this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about music here on the show. And we've heard from you. You love it, too. And this is a story about the time a young, unknown 19-year-old kid named Elvis Presley walked into Sam Phillips' Sun Recording Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. And we broadcast an hour south of Memphis in the beautiful town of Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss. Phillips thought Elvis was one of the most introverted people who'd ever walked into his studio, but also one of the bravest. Here's Greg Hengler. Memphis, 1954, and Sun Recording Studio boss Sam Phillips dreams of discovering a new sound, a blend of the best black music and the best of white music. In an extract from one of his Elvis biographies, America's most preeminent writer on popular music, Peter Gorelnik, takes up the story. Sam Phillips had been thinking more and more that the key lay in connection between the races and what they had in common far more than what kept them apart. But far more to the point was the spiritual connection that he had always known to exist between black and white, the cultural heritage that they all shared. Let's kick this story off with the man himself, Sam Phillips. Well, hello. And welcome to the cradle of rock and roll. Here's Peter Gorelnik and music historian Jason King. Sam Phillips was three days short of 27 when he opened the doors to the Memphis Recording Service. He started the label sound three years later. So many earlier producers like Sam Phillips, they're basically operating in an A&R capacity, looking for promising talent, bringing them into the studio and crafting a unique sound for them. From Sam Phillips' point of view, if you weren't doing something different, you weren't doing anything. He was looking for individualism in the extreme, as he would say. When I wanted to open up my recording studio, I didn't tell too many people about what I had in mind because I didn't know whether I'd be able to pull it off. I didn't have enough money to buy the equipment that I wanted, and I didn't know whether I could pay the rent. But I knew that I was going to get me some black folks in that studio one way or the other. I recorded Roscoe Gordon, B.B. King, The Howling Wolf, Little Junior Parker. Here's country music singer-songwriter Marty Stewart. Memphis in the mid-50s was a black cat's town. It was about soul. Nashville didn't rock. Memphis did. Here's guitarist Jeff Beck. Sam Phillips was so smitten with the sound of black music and black blues, but he knew that he'd need a white guy to put it out there, and uh, he found a guy called Elvis Presley. <laughs> Here's Elvis's first ever recording, My Happiness. Evening shadows make me blue with Elvis, I knew when he walked in the door, baby. If anybody can do this, I believe this is the person that can do it. There was something that he heard in this kid, something that was unique about him. Here's Elvis archivist 
Ernst Jorgensen. But as the uh, session begins, Elvis starts singing all these country songs and pop standards. And Sam realizes, hey, this is not going to work. He has a wonderful voice, but it's so insecure. Just as long as I'm with you, my happiness. So I went in and talked to him and said, hey, we still are not where I believe we should be, and I think we all agree on this. And so... Yeah, I turned around, went back in the control room, and the next thing I know, Elvis cut out on That's All Right, Mama. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do, that's all right. And man, the minute I heard that thing, I said, Lord, hey. If we weren't going to make it on that, honey, there was nothing I could do ever. Here's B.B. King. So I used to hear Elvis, and they would be singing and playing, and they sound good, but they was playing white music. That's all right, Mama, that's all right for you. When he did that, I was, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's, this, is, this is all right. How do you categorize that's all right? It's just a magic moment. And it's truly original in that it doesn't sound like anything else in the marketplace. I'm leaving town, baby. I'm leaving town for sure. Well, then you won't be bothered with me hanging round your door. But that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, mama. Anyway, do. To Sam Phillips, it was always about freeing, freeing the soul of his singers. Most of these people who came to him, like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Roy Orbison, they all shared this enormous insecurity. His magic was to pull it out of them, whatever it was that they had inside. I believe you're doing me wrong and now I qualities of Sam Phillips first saw in him, he continued to show till the end of his career. When you know that you have been able to give these people the inspiration to display their God-given talent and to be proud of it, I think that is the essence of Sun Records. I don't care if I die. I said flip, flop, and fly. Don't care if I die. Don't ever leave me. Don't ever say goodbye. And great job on that. Greg Hengler is always in a love story of a sort. And as always, we love doing our music stories here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Elvis Presley, Sam Phillips' story, Memphis's story, here on Our American Stories. Wise men say Only fools run 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to hear from some of the greatest writers in this country. And some of our favorites are at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, We've talked to Heidi Mitchell, I don't know, probably a dozen times up till now. And she has a terrific weekly column that we urge everyone to go and read. And again, we do no politics here, no debating here, but we love good stories and interesting, interesting writers. And Elizabeth Bernstein is a writer at the Wall Street Journal and a columnist there. Psychology and relationships are her beat, and we love those subjects too. And she had a column that was called Fine-Tune Your BS Detector. You'll need it. And Elizabeth joins us now. Elizabeth, why did you write this? What about right now says we need to be fine-tuning our BS detectors? Well, two things, really. The first is I was attending a psychology conference in Atlanta a month or so ago, and there was a whole presentation. Researchers, psychologists, and actually computer scientists had started to research how to detect and how to confront BS. And the reason they're doing it, so my second reason for wanting to write this, first I was intrigued that they were actually studying, trying to quantify this in a scientific way, BS, but also there's so much more of it now. Uh, or it's, it's been around forever, really, but it's spreading faster and farther now because of the Internet, because of bots that go on the Internet. They're not even people that are spreading it with intent to harm. So um, these two things together, the fact that scientists are studying it and that it's spreading farther, we have to be more careful about it, made me think, wow, that's something we should look at. And by the way, this was the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, and the title of one particular symposium was BSing Empirical and Experiential Examinations of a Pervasive Social Behavior. So let's ask, what is BS? So BS is a form of persuasion, and uh, the the user is aiming to impress the listener by employing a blatant disregard for the facts. So they're just, it's it's different than lying. Lying is, I might want to impress you, I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I know the facts, I'm just going to ignore them. The BSer could not care less about the facts. I'm just going to let them fly out the window, I'm just going to tell you whatever I want. And by the way, that's why we call them BS artists. I mean, no one ever calls a liar an artist. But you'll also, you'll hear it often, oh, he's a BS artist, right? Yeah, because people sort of do it. You know, some people do it. We might all, somebody might even come to mind right now for each one of us. Like, we maybe we all know somebody. But um, people do it. They're very good at it. Just And what they're good at is ignoring the facts, like completely not caring at all if there's facts out there or not. Right. Harry Frankfurt, in his very interesting book back in 2005 called On B.S., explored how BS is different than lying because liars know the truth and push it aside, while BSers don't necessarily care about the truth at all. Those are your words. So this, in a sense, the BSer is sort of like performance art, and everybody sort of knows what it is if they have any knowledge of the person doing the BSing. And uh, talk talk about that and why you had said a little bit about how social media was making this more explosive and all the bots. But what was the deeper reason for getting at this? Because something tells me that this is starting to show up on, on couches, in, in disorders. In, I mean, there are, there are real problems attenuated with this now. Problems like look, we're in this uh, culture right now where people claim fake news. That's a lie, and everything. It's almost like a defense. I can tell you anything I want. You can tell me back the truth, and I'm going to scream it above you. Fake news. It's a lie. You're telling me the wrong. Complete disregard for facts. We are in a culture that is changing fast. 
you know, I believe over the last few years with the Internet, with things going on in the world, it's, it's uh, the discourse out there is um, angry, and I, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm just going to shout above you. And so in that kind of world right now, people who are doing that, who are these BS artists, can uh, be heard. It's almost like it's becoming a norm in a certain areas. And so that's why it really does. And with the Internet, so Facebook, I can post anything I want. And here's something interesting. People who, when they BS, when they're susceptible to BS, it's it's the BS that they want to believe, right? right? So I may see something that says chocolate is healthy. Boy, I really want to believe that one. So I'm going to post that. I'm not going to check the facts. I'm going to tell all of my followers, hey, look at this awesome post. doesn't matter who wrote it. Be it chocolate is healthy. So we are susceptible to BS when we want to believe it, when it confirms our own bias. This is all out there in the Internet. Everybody's publishing everything they want on their own feeds. This is why in this environment it's really, really important that we sort of get a hand on what information is coming at us and learn to evaluate it. And also, it's exactly why the scientists are studying it now. They know that this is becoming more and more hard and more and more important. Yeah, and I think that you had a line there. It said, basically, if you agreed with the attitude of the BSer, it was great stuff. But if you didn't, it was propaganda. And that tells us, I think that has a lot to do with how we think politically and organized politically in this country and even on cultural, big cultural questions. And, and I think we've all had confirmation bias in this in this area for a long time. But I thought it was really fascinating was just the, the what happens with false news and, and rumors. And there was a study at MIT that you talked about and wrote about. Uh, tell the audience about that study, because this is what I found most interesting and, and most frightening about your piece. So MIT looked at, um, over a decade, if I remember, they looked at many, many um, rumors that were spread, information that was spread in tweets. And what they found out was that uh, the false information moved faster and farther than the truth. So when the, when the treat, tweets were based on true information, they did not go as far and they did not move as fast as the false one. And that is terrifying right now. So and what it is showing is what we were talking about, that people, when you believe it already, when it's your bias, say, you you know, my dog's a beagle. I want to believe beagles are the best dogs. If I see a tweet that says that, I'm not even going to read the story, see who wrote it. I'm going to move that fast through my Twitter feed, retweet it, because um, it just it is confirming what I want to believe. And so uh, that in this environment, you're right, is terrifying that, that this false information is uh, being spread more than the truth. You know, Michael Crichton, in one of his last interviews on PBS, was asked about, he had written a book about global warming, and he said, there is global warming. I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm as good as any scientist, but I don't know how bad it is, and I think the apocalyptic predictions may be over the top. And the interviewer said, well, why do you think it is that people respond to this the way they do? And he goes, try asking somebody, hey, did you have a good day yesterday? And, and you said, yeah, I had a good day, and everything's good. That's not interesting, but say the seas are overcoming the world and make apocalyptic claims and suddenly you get attention. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing here in terms of false claims. Now, he, he thinks that's exact. Crichton was talking about exaggerated claims, and here we're getting right to the substance of false claims. You also write that false claims can override prior knowledge. So talk about that if you could. So people, we have this prior knowledge. I might, in the back of my head, know that beagles are not actually the best breed of dog. They're a little stubborn. They like to eat everything in sight. But I believe it. I want to believe it. And so when something comes at me that says uh, it's different, especially when it's repeated, this is one key thing. When information, when BS or any information is repeated, even just once, we're more likely to believe it. So uh, we, I may know in my head that, 
the beagles are not the best dogs, but if somebody tells me they are, I already want to believe it, and then they repeat it, I'm going to, you know, go for this. This is what I'm going to go for. Another issue that's really interesting in this uh, culture that we're in right now is we all use Facebook, Twitter, our social media to um, sort of broadcast who we are. So we want to broadcast something to our, our basically our like-minded people, our friends. And uh, we tend to then broadcast, we're susceptible then to both broadcast and believe that information that, again, confirms our bias. Uh, so I might be much more likely to read a false claim, decide I'm going to post it on Facebook because it says something about me. Again, maybe it says, you know, just to stick with the dogs, you know, I'm a beagle lover, I'm a dog lover, this is great. Um, it's called tribal epistemology. We're, we're singling to our tribe, this is who I am, these are my beliefs, I share your beliefs. And that's where a lot of fake news comes up to when we're busy telling each other, see, I'm one of you. Yeah, and who would have known with all this open platform and all this open sourcing that we would become much more tribal as a country? And I think everyone can agree on that fact, that people are now siloing more than ever. And now when you hear a differing opinion, you just call it a lie or you call it false. You can't even stand the idea that someone might disagree with you. You can't stand it. We're at a point where we can't even dialogue. And also, I think we see this, um, again, we don't want to talk about politics, but we certainly see it in politics. But we see it in science. We see it in all areas. I, you know, we get rid of people on our feeds if they don't show us what we want to see. Like, we just get, you know, oops, that person doesn't agree with me. They might be my sister. I'm going to get rid of her on my feed. Don't want to see what she's saying all day. So um, we tend to get, you're right, much more sort of closed in. Now my Facebook feed is just people like me, because that's what I want to see when I open my phone in the morning. I don't want to see anything that I find disturbing. Um, so you're right, we're getting smaller and smaller. And again, in that space, that's where this BS is thriving. Yep. And we're learning less and less as a result. I mean, no one, you know, the idea of a conflict of ideas, making and sharpening our ideas. Well, this, this BS stuff plays a part of it. We're talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, and she writes a column at the Wall Street Journal on psychology and relationships. And let's keep doing this. I love your work, and we'd love to have you on our show more often. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for doing what you do and for writing this piece. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. I have sinned, dear father. Father, I have sinned. Try and help me, father. Won't you let me in? Liar! Nobody believes me. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Sports, history, arts, the culture, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put them up on the air, and we're doing that just right now. And by the way, some of these stories are beautiful. Some of these stories are hard. Some are both, and I think this one is. And this one comes to us from one of our listeners in Des Moines, Iowa and at the home of the mighty WHO, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And it comes from Joy Neal Kidney. In World War II, her grandmother sent five sons to war. Only two, only two came home. Here, Joy shares how her family has honored these men. 
neglected gravestones over Memorial Day. No flowers, no one to remember. This would never happen in our family, so I thought. Growing up, I knew that my mother's five brothers had served in World War II and that the three youngest had lost their lives. Their sepia-toned photographs, all in uniform, were a familiar part of our home. Those same pictures posed for decades on the chest of drawers in Grandma's house. I grew up with women who observed every decoration day, as it was called then. I could have asked for details about those young brothers, but knew the answers would bring tears, so I didn't. In fact, Memorial Day was a wonderful time for me as a child, as it meant an outing to the big town of Perry for lunch and shopping with Grandma, Mom, Sis Gloria, and Aunt Darlene. Either Mom or Darlene would pick up the other, both toting pails of pink peonies, coral bells, and blue iris from their own gardens. Carried in the trunk of the car, these spring blossoms were for the cemeteries. We'd drive the dusty gravel roads of Madison County, then the hills of Highway 25 to Grandma's house in Guthrie Center, where she would be waiting with her best flowers, including what she called little yellow buttons. Grandma's parents and some of her siblings are buried there at the Guthrie Cemetery, so we'd leave flowers there first to remember them before heading east to Panther Corner. Perry is a few miles north of where the old Panther store used to stand. We'd skirt Perry's downtown toward our main mission, Violet Hill Cemetery in the northeast corner of town. Grandma's husband is buried there and their three sons who were lost in the war. Or so I thought. The Wilson Stones are in the east section with stately evergreens. We three generations would solemnly deliver the flowers from the car to the Wilson Stones. Everything seemed hushed. Before the four names, Dale, Daniel, Claiborne J., and Clay Wilson, we'd secure metal vases with wires Mom had cut from coat hangers. Then we'd fill them with our pastel bouquets. How nice they look, Grandma would mention. I remember her shedding tears there only once. The mood lightened on the drive toward downtown. I don't remember what the grown-ups ate, but we young sisters were treated to hamburgers and Cokes in a real cafe east of the library. Then shopping and visiting. For young girls from an Iowa farm near the small town of Dexter, this day was a yearly treat. When it was time to start back home, we'd always drive by the old Wilson acreage, a mile south on 16th Street. Grandma and her daughters always wanted to see how it looked after so many years, and how much the trees had grown that they had planted in the 1940s. Through the decades, different family members would make that annual Memorial Day trip to Perry with Grandma. One or two of Aunt Darlene's sons went along, and later on, even my own young son. Grandma died in 1987, leaving a cedar chest full of old postcards, letters, pictures, and the terrible telegrams. After Mom and Aunt Darlene relived the war by reading through them, they shared them with me. I realized for the very first time that only their youngest brother, Junior, 
is buried in the Perry Cemetery. Danny Wilson, a P-38 pilot who was killed in action in Austria, is buried in France. Dale Wilson, the co-pilot on a B-25, was lost off the coast of New Guinea with his crew. Only God knows where their remains lie. I was determined that when Mom and Aunt Darlene, who is Dale's twin, got to the place that they could no longer make the trip to Perry to remember their brothers and parents for Memorial Day, I'd always get it done. So I thought. My health got to the place where I could no longer make the trip. One day my husband and I stopped by just to see the stones once more. I realized that because Dale's official date of death is listed as 1946, months after the war ended, no one would understand that he'd been a war casualty. A few additions to all three stones would tell more of the story of what this one family had endured. Mom and Darlene agreed and the information was added. One stone commemorates Dale and Danny, making clear that they were both killed in action. The center stone marks the grave of Junior, whose P-40 exploded in formation training in Texas in August 1945 at the very end of the war. The brothers were aged 22, 21, and 20. Their father, Clay, died next year of a stroke and a broken heart, surely another casualty of the war. Even though no family members have recently remembered the Wilsons for Memorial Day, the price that our freedoms cost this one Dallas County family must never be forgotten. And it's not forgotten here, Joy. And thanks for that piece. And Danny, Dale, and Junior, the sacrifices won't be forgotten. And here in our American stories, we don't forget. That's what we do here. As often as we can, bring back history to life. Because it's still alive, folks, and it matters. These stories matter. You know, it brings to mind the Sullivan brothers. I've been reading about them recently. All five boys in that family died in World War II. They were all on the same ship, the USS Juno. And on November 13, 1942, it was torpedoed down off the coast of the Solomon Islands by a Japanese destroyer. 687 sailors on board, 100 went into the water. Only 10 survived the elements and shark attacks. And it also brings to mind a personal story, my own family story, a story my mom told me, and I have her brother's Purple Heart. And boy, the way they printed out Purple Hearts in World War II. It was the summer of 44, and my mom remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The men stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that building, and several had loved ones who'd volunteer to fight. Her brother John was one of them. He signed up when he was 18, and he paratrooped behind enemy lines right around the time of D-Day. She told me she felt terrible, praying that it would be someone else's door those men knocked on. And then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. She was 13. She told me she never heard her mom cry so hard when those men knocked on that door. Her mom didn't need to open it to comprehend the news. Her dad barely cried, but she never again saw him enjoy his life. He'd lost not just his son, but his only son. My mom told me. 
he'd lost his bloodline. And so here in our American stories, we celebrate the fallen soldiers and we honor their sacrifices and all of the men and women serving our country in uniform here and abroad. This is our American stories, Joy, Neil, Kidney's family story. So many other family stories, families whose sons, daughters, loved ones, fathers, husbands paid the ultimate price. This is Our American Stories, and it's time to hear the story of one of the more unusual figures in American history. While you seldom hear his name nowadays, he was a big deal during the late 60s and early 70s. Here's Jesse with the story of Tiny Tim. saw Tiny Tim on television while growing up in the 80s. Captured my attention right away. What the heck was I watching? A grown man playing the ukulele singing like a cartoon character with a terrifying physical appearance and strange demeanor. Think Marilyn Manson meets Jackie Mason. I'm not trying to be mean, just descriptive. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, hearing this music today, someone who isn't familiar with Tiny Tim might think that this was all just one big joke. But Tiny Tim wasn't a joke. Most people thought of him as a novelty comedy act. But the thing is, Tiny Tim wasn't really an act. Now, here's the speaking voice of Tiny Tim. You're going to notice a bit of a difference from his singing voice. Melody, in my opinion, is 99% of all songs. Words are just 1%. A great melody is what really counts, whether it's today or 50 years ago, any of the Beatles songs. You know, the Beatles had one thing in common with Irving Berlin and all the other writers like the Gershwins. They knew how they had a great knack of, of what hit songs sounded like. You take mostly any of their songs, from Norwegian Wood to uh, I Saw Her Standing There to uh, Love Me Do, every one of these songs can be remembered. They just had a knack of writing hit songs. In April of 1932, he was born Herbert Buckingham Carey in Manhattan. His mother, a Polish Jew. His father, a Lebanese Catholic. Tiny Tim displayed musical talent at a very young age. At five years old, his father gave him a vintage wind-up gramophone and a 78 RPM record of Beautiful Ohio by Henry Burke. Long, long ago, someone I know Tiny Tim would sit for hours listening to this record. At the age of six, he began teaching himself to play guitar. 
By his preteen years, he developed a passion for records, specifically those from the 1900s through the 1930s. He began spending most of his free time at the New York Public Library reading about the history of the phonograph industry and its first recording artists. He would research sheet music, often making copies to take home to learn. A hobby he continued for his entire life. The New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, I don't know if any one of your listeners know this, it's available, they have over 7 million songs. And with the original sheet music co- uh, you know, cover going back to the 1800s in large bound volumes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are microfilm now, and they can be, they can be Xerox only with the publisher's permission but, uh, after 1905. Mm-hmm. But before 1905, you can Xerox them. Uh, and I found, just looking through the history of this country as well as the hit songs at that time, which is simply amazing. Now here's a song. Thanks, I picked. Thanks, Mr. Bailey. I, tell you, I picked a song up last year in the library. The sheet music was faded and torn, and I was just fortunate to be able to Xerox this mm-hmm. because it was 1905, and they don't let you do anything after that year mm-hmm. unless you get the publisher's permission. But here's a song that um, was written at the time the subways were first being built in Chicago and in New York. The first underground subways. I hope it wasn't. Down in the subways, oh, what a place! Under the Isle of Manhattan, speeding through space, just the place for swooning all the season round. Way down, way down in the subway, we underneath the ground. At 11 years old, Tiny Tim began learning how to play the violin and the mandolin, soon moving on to what would be considered his signature instrument, the ukulele. After dropping out of high school, he worked a series of menial jobs before he discovered his ability to sing in an upper register. Something of a new revelation. I never knew that I had a higher top register. And one day I heard Rudy Valley sing, and uh, I said, gee, look how high he hits those notes. I consider this a gift of the Lord, uh, an undisclosed gift. By the early 1950s, he had landed a job as a messenger at the New York office of MGM Studios, where he became ever more fascinated with the entertainment industry. Tiny Tim started by performing at dance club amateur nights under different names such as Texarkana Tex, Judas K. Foxglove, Vernon Castle, and Emmett Swink. Oh, animal crackers in my soup. Monkeys and rabbits, loop the loop. Gosh, oh gee, but I have fun swallowing. Oh, when they're inside me where it's dark, I walk around like Noah's Ark. I stuff my tummy like a but animal crackers in my soup. Now to stand out from the crowd of performers, Tiny Tim would wear crazy outfits. And after seeing an old poster of a long-haired Rudolph Valentino, Tiny Tim grew his own hair out to shoulder length and wore pasty white facial makeup. His mother didn't understand his change in appearance and was intending to take her son, now in his 20s, to see a psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital until his father stepped in. You see, back in the day, if your mom took you to Bellevue, you were pretty much certified crazy. She left me with the herpes. Now why did she do that? 
Last night I sat upon a chair and gave it to the cat. The cat gave it to Rover and to the mousey too. The mousey gave it to the bird. I don't know what to do. Thank God his dad intervened. By 1968, his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim, was released. It contained an orchestrated version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips, which became a hit after being released as a single. Now, for most of the album, Tiny Tim sings in his unusual falsetto style. However, on a number of songs like this hilarious rendition of Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, he sings both baritone and falsetto, alternating between the two. Because you've all been so sweet, another duet for you. They say we're young and we don't know Won't find out until we grow Well, I don't know, I guess it's true Cause you got me and baby, I got you Funny thing is, he almost sounds just like Cher I got you, babe I got you, babe just a year later, in 1969, Tiny Tim was now a household name on three continents when he appeared with Bing Crosby on live television from the Hollywood Palace. We'll have a little game here. I'll sing a bit of a song, and you tell me uh, what picture it was from, and then you have to sing another song from the same picture. Now, sit down. This will take a little thought. You ready? Gee, thanks, Mr. Bing. That'd be great. I'll sing a song. You tell me what picture, and then you sing a song of the same Down the old ox road, though you'll never know where it is by looking at maps. Oh, gee, that's easy. What's that? That's, the year was 1933. True. The picture was College Humor. Right. And from that picture, you also sang, Learn to croon. You'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, learn to croon. Or you could throw a Labrador through that, that vibrato of yours. Tiny Tim was now just about as famous as you can get. That same year, he married his third wife, Vicky, on the set of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in front of 40 million viewers. Here's stage magician and comedian Penn Gillette on why Tiny Tim matters to him. Tiny Tim matters to me because he is the antithesis of all that is cynical in the uh, American culture. There was this time... You know, this time in the late 60s when all of America decided to embrace, whether with a wink or whether without a wink, someone who was truly different, who was truly eccentric. And all the people that have reason to be cynical, um, Lenny Bruce, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Johnny Carson, Bing Crosby, Howard Stern, um, they all melted in front of Tiny Tim. Bob Dylan uh, seemed to think he was the only real person that uh, Bob Dylan ever met. Bob Dylan met a lot of people. On September 28, 1996, Tiny Tim suffered a heart attack just as he began singing at a ukulele festival in Montauk, Massachusetts. He was hospitalized for three weeks before being discharged and told never to play again on stage. Tiny Tim ignored the advice. On November 30th of 1996, he was playing at a gala benefit hosted by the Women's Club of Minneapolis. While performing his last number of the evening, he suffered another heart attack on stage in the middle of a rendition of his hit, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. When he collapsed and never regained consciousness, Tiny Tim was pronounced dead nearly an hour later. And that is the story of Tiny Tim. 
never hit your grandma with a shovel It makes a bad impression on her mind One of a kind, unabashedly himself Strange, American This is Our American Story All I want is 50 million dollars and great job on that, Jesse. And if you can, go to YouTube, Google Tiny Tim and Johnny Carson, and you'll understand what Penn Jillette was saying. Tiny Tim's story here on Our American Stories. And we're living in the magic with a gold. If I only owned Pennsylvania This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from our very best writers, and Jonathan Rausch is an award-winning author with seven books and many more magazine credits to his name, but the book we're going to talk about today is personal. It's called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, and it's Jonathan's detective story about why he and so many of us fall into a funk right when we appear to have it all. And Jonathan, you start your book with the story of a man named Carl. Tell us about him. Carl is a guy in his 40s. He's objectively super successful in life. He's got a good marriage. He's got kids that are happy. He's recently switched to the job kind of thing he's always wanted to do. And yet he feels strangely unfulfilled. He comes home at night thinking, what's the matter with my life? Why am I so discontent? He started to feel like there's something wrong with him. And he, he told me he was actually starting to feel a little bit scared. He wasn't even telling his wife about it because he didn't want her to get upset. So he was holding it all in. And I heard this and when I was 54, about 10 years older. And I thought, that is my life. That is exactly what I went through. You know, you wrote that, quote, it feels kind of conceited to bring it up to my friends. They just kind of look at me and say, geez, you got it all. So there's sort of a, a shame, oddly enough, in feeling this feeling of, if not depression, uh, unease, fear, at a time when most people would look at you and say, you've got it all. What do you got to complain about? Well, that's right. His subjective well-being, how good he feels about his life, and his objective well-being, the circumstances of his life have completely parted ways. And, and that, too, is what happened with me. I knew I was in trouble when I was 45. I'm a journalist, magazine writer, and I won a national magazine award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the magazine business. It just doesn't get any better. And that made me feel fulfilled for like 10 days. And then these creeping ideations of, you know, I'm wasting my life. I should quit everything and go somewhere else. They, they came back. And that's when I knew what was going on was strange and irrational. I felt just the way Carl did. I haven't earned these feelings. I should be grateful. Why am I not grateful? Yep. Why am I not grateful? Let's talk about Dominic. Much of his identity was wrapped up in his work and things hadn't turned out like he expected and yet he characterized the stage of his life as appreciative. So talk about him in contrast to Carl. Dominic is 
a little older than Carl, about five years when I spoke to them. They're actually very similar demographically. They're a closely matched pair. They even travel in similar social circles. Dominic has been where Carl was a few years ago. He felt that same dissatisfaction and restlessness and unease and sense that he was wasting his life. But by his early 50s, he senses he's begun to kind of turn around. He's He's feeling like his expectations are a little bit lower, and he's somehow feeling more appreciative of what he's got on a day-to-day basis, just you know, being with his daughter, his family. And I, at the start of my book, I juxtaposed these two because in many ways, the big difference between them is actually their age. Carl is five years younger. He's at a different point in the happiness curve. Let's talk about Thomas Cole and his series of four paintings, The Voyage of Life. This is a 19th century painter who I think had stumbled upon these insights in his art long before social psychologists had come to the same conclusions we'll get to in a bit. Talk about Thomas Cole. I beheld them for the first time when I was 20 years old, and they they just stopped me short, partly because of their beauty, but partly because of the story they tell. So Cole is a landscape artist, And he sets out on a commission to do a series of paintings depicting the voyage of life, starting with childhood. And what they show is a baby, then the same young man, then middle-aged, then old age, in a boat on a river. In the front of the boat, on the prow, is an hourglass. Behind the boat is a guardian angel, in most of the paintings, out of sight of the young man in the boat. The first one shows the baby emerging from the womb into a kind of garden of Eden. The second one shows a young man exactly the same age I was when I first saw it, about the age of 20. And he's reaching for a castle in the sky. And those are his ambitions for life, not just his ambitions for accomplishing things, but his ambitions for happiness, because he thinks if he accomplishes the things he wants to do, that that's going to be fulfilling. Well, surprise, the next painting is midlife. Rapids, dark clouds, craggy rocks, um, the tiller is knocked off the boat. He's looking overhead and, and praying for deliverance. But blocking his view of the heavens are dark clouds and, and demons. And that's Thomas Cole's portrayal of where Carl is at. What's so interesting about these is that there are no people, buildings, cities, society, nothing like that. It's a portrayal of our psychological journey years before there even was such a thing as psychologically. Cole is saying, this is how it's going to feel to be you at these different portions of your life. And it turns out he's exactly right. You know, it's interesting when you're going through that, and I I hadn't seen these paintings in at least 15 years back when I lived in D.C., and they startled me. But what I did not see in that final painting, because I had my own biases about old age, is I saw all the darkness in that fourth painting and not the light. And that was my own bias, and we're going to get to that later as well. But when you were younger, did you see the same thing? Do we see what we want to see or see what our experience allows us to see, Jonathan? I saw myself exactly in youth because I was 19 and expected great things for myself. I just didn't know what they were going to be. But I thought, you know, 
I knew I just I had an inkling I wanted to be a writer, and I thought if I could even just ever get one article published in a major magazine, just one, I'd feel fulfilled for the entire rest of my life. So that was completely accurate. It painted my life, and I also remember thinking, well, that middle-aged one, that's not going to be me. I mean, I knew it was something like that for my father, but I thought, well, you know, any good thing that happens to me, I'll be grateful for it and satisfied. So in the future painting, the future me, in middle age, the young me was not ready to see that. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. This is Our American Story. our American stories and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch who's written The Happiness Curve Why Life Gets Better After 50 and we were just talking about how so many of us experience more happiness and satisfaction in our youth and then later in our lives than during midlife something that even the great 19th century painter Thomas Cole showed in his work by the way the National Gallery is in Washington D.C. his work is there worth a trip just to see it it's so staggering and so beautiful the adventures of life. Jonathan, you were motivated to look into this topic of happiness and ultimately write this book because of your own life. It's odd to be in your mid-40s having achieved all of your important life goals, but feeling down. Talk about your own journey, starting with this quote from your book, quote, I was in the closet with my unhappiness. Well, I was, and Carl is. I think Carl said that he only ever told one other person how he was feeling, and it wasn't his wife. I talked to another guy who was going through the same thing, and he said that he had tried telling a friend or two, and and then he stopped doing that because one of them gossiped about it, and he he didn't want to be a source of actual ridicule. You know, oh, Lee's going through his midlife crisis. Hey, Lee, when are you going to buy the sports car? Ha, ha, ha. Right. So the happiness curve, is totally normal, natural, and healthy. It's very unpleasant if you're going through it, but it has a payoff, which we should talk about, which is what happens in our 50s, 60s, and beyonds. It's reorienting us to be less focused on ambition and achievement as a source of our personal well-being and more focused on connection and community, which comes later in life and is a much more fulfilling source of happiness. But in between, there's this nasty transition when we're disappointed in the happiness achievement has brought us, and the new values haven't really arrived yet. That's a natural process, right? It's a little bit like adolescence. It's just something many people go through. I mean, a lot of people have a hard time in adolescence, so, you know, fine, we help them get through it. But we make it much worse. We do that in a few ways. And we should talk about all of them, but one of them is what you just mentioned. We make fun of this period in life. And we make people feel like middle age is supposed to be the peak of life. You know, they're masters of the universe. They're taking care of their kids and their parents, and they've got the mortgage, and they've got the high-profile career, and they're good at everything. They're supermen and superwomen. So 
if people are feeling bad in this portion of life, and it does turn out to be a very vulnerable portion of life, well, they're bottling it up. They're feeling like, I can't tell anyone about this. And, you know, I'm a gay man, and I lived through life in the closet. And very quickly, when I started hearing people's stories, I realized this is the closet all over again. I mean, it's never going to be super easy to be gay, but having to bottle it all up, be ashamed of it, not tell anyone, go on about your life without opening up about the true you, that makes it much worse. And that's what's going on with Carl. Indeed, and I would say this about so many things in life. The more we open up and share, uh, the more we can know that other people in the world are going through the same thing, Jonathan. Let's talk about happiness and income. Quote, all the evidence says that on average, people are no happier today than people were 50 years ago, writes Richard Laird, a prominent British economist. Yet, at the same time, average incomes doubled. This paradox is equally true for the U.S., Britain, and Japan. So economic well-being doesn't make a person happier or less happy, Jonathan? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because poverty is immiserating. So getting out of poverty is really important. But beyond a certain point, they're diminishing returns of additional income because it turns out that once you're beyond the poverty level, you're, you're living pretty well, it's just not actually that helpful to have your fourth or fifth you know, million dollar. In fact, it can be counterproductive because of what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, which is when you're in a race for money or status, you're always comparing yourself above you to the people who are higher than you and you're trying to catch up. But there's always going to be someone higher than you. So you become like a gerbil on one of those little running, running loop cycle things. The more you try to get status, the more you feel like you're not getting there. So beyond a certain point, investing and in making more money or having more status turns out not to be a reliable way to increase your well-being and sometimes can make it worse. Here's the most fundamental finding of happiness economics you wrote. The factors that most determine our happiness are social and not material. Talk about that. This is, this is the core finding of research in multiple disciplines now, economics, psychology, neuroscience. Human beings are tribal animals. We're social animals. We're wired to be in groups. And the main determinant of our happiness is having trusting, loving relationships, supportive relationships, reliable relationships with the people around us. Investing in people and connections and community in a supportive way that is the opposite of the hedonic treadmill. It turns out that those that's like putting happiness in the bank. It not only makes you more satisfied with your life in the short term, it's cumulative. It's, it's not a situation where the goalposts move. Unfortunately, when we're young, it's hard to focus on those things because we're wired to be ambitious when we're young. Evolution wants us to go out and you know really impress, impress our fellow tribes, people, and get lots of status and lots of social connections and, you know, a fat Rolodex and thus lots of mating opportunities. So that means early in life, it's harder to live according to this, what we now know about happiness. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, though. Indeed. Let's talk about Aristotle. 
and the virtues he wrote about centuries ago relating to life. It turns out, after all these centuries, he was on the mark about a lot of things. Human beings are still, in the end, Jonathan, human beings. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder about Aristotle. Was he a creature from outer space? Because he got so much right, and it took really modern science to understand how right he was. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, of course, um, 5th century BC, and he makes this important distinction that real happiness is not just transitory cheerfulness. It's a sense of fulfillment with your life, a sense of satisfaction with your life. And that, he says, comes not from pleasure, but from inculcating in yourself a virtuous life which basically means doing things that are good for yourself and other people and making that a habit. So you don't even have to think about it that much. And all of this turns out to be exactly true, so much so that, you know, I kind of wonder, how did he know that? There's a big basic distinction between happiness in the sense of emotional feeling good right now and happiness in the sense of well-being, feeling satisfaction with your life as a whole. Everything we're talking about in this conversation is about the latter. Indeed. It's about that sense of well-being, which is much more important for life satisfaction overall um, than just your mood. You know, I don't think people can hear that often enough. The culture, Jonathan, sends so many messages directly to the contrary. Buy this, you'll be happier. Go here, you'll be happier. Travel here, you'll be happier. Love all these different people as opposed to one person, and you'll be happier. In the age of Tinder and Instagram, this is very counterintuitive. Yeah, that's the thing about Aristotle. He's been rediscovered by modern science, as has wisdom, which is another piece of Aristotle, which we should come back to. But we have, as a culture, spent the last multiple decades moving in the opposite direction. The idea behind Facebook, you know, it was supposed to be, we'll connect the world and everyone will be happier because we'll have a zillion connections instead of just, you know, these 30 or, or so key people in our lives that we mostly talk to face-to-face. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. It turns out what we're doing on Facebook is not connecting, it's displaying, as psychologists put it, Um, which means showing off our carefully curated lifestyle homepages in which we're always happy and we're always on vacation and, and showing, you know, pictures of big smiley pictures. Or we're displaying our animosity to the other side, to groups that we hate. Right. Which is a way of ingratiating ourselves with our own group. So that means, you know, we're on Twitter slamming people and trolling. So it turns out once again that that the old wisdom about this is right. There's no substitute for close connections in person, face to face with real people. And when we come back, we're to continue this terrific conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. Again, it's The Happiness Curve. And I'll tell you, you'll feel happier about a lot of things and better. If you're going through some things, you're going to get through those things, more than likely. And these are just, well, it's just a part of life and living, these stages of life. The Happiness Curve, Jonathan Rausch, we continue our conversation after these messages here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with author Jonathan Rausch and his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. You won't put it down. You'll learn so much. Give it to a friend, too, especially if they're in their mid-30s, early 40s. Heck, give it to people in their 20s, too. They can at least get a sense of what's coming in life. Then they can get through life in a better way, in a, in a, in a, well, in a more relaxed way. Let's talk about the curve part of your life, Jonathan. We live in a society that celebrates and glamorizes youth. But on average, most people reach their highest levels of life satisfaction in their later years. Not in childhood, not in midlife, when many of us are at our professional peak. This is a fairly new discovery. Talk about it. Well, yeah, it goes back about 20, 25 years. The biggest, strangest thing I learned in writing The Happiness Curve is that midlife crisis is very often literally about nothing. And we should come back to that because that throws off a lot of people. But the most surprising thing I learned is what you just said. That other things being equal, of course, individual mileage will vary, but other things being equal, as we get older, our life satisfaction increases right through old age. We're actually programmed by evolution as we move out of our 50s and beyond to invest more in those key relationships with other human beings, to care more about community and less about personal advancement. And that plus changes in the brain, which actually make us more positive about life as we get old, actually increases contentment even in many cases, if we're ailing and sick, this is the opposite of the stereotype of aging, which is old people are crotchety, lonely, depressed. And after about age 50, you know, it's going to be a long, slow decline. And of course, that makes it worse because everyone who's unhappy at age 45 or 50 thinks, well, I'm, this, is, this is bad and this is the peak. It only gets worse. So then they get pessimistic as well as disappointed. So it's very important for people to understand that that's not true at all. The stereotype of aging is, is just plain wrong, and this is one of the most robust findings out there. Um, things get better. Emotional satisfaction gets better as you get older. You get better at regulating your emotions, experience less regret, less stress in any given situation, more positivity. Even true of what you perceive, they put people in brain scanners, and older brains react more to positivity you know, things like smiley faces and less things, less to negativity, things like frowning faces. So I tell you right about time also a lot, Jonathan. Time matters. Those were two words you wrote together. It was a sentence, and it was a big one. Talk about why you put those two words together. We imagine that aging is the passage of time in our lives is a neutral process, so, you know, it's just the clock ticking. It's the background. Or we imagine that aging is a process of slow decline because, of course, you know, our bodies deteriorate over time and then eventually we die. So those are the two models of how age affects us in life, but they're both wrong. The big finding of the last, really, it's only been nailed down in the past 10 years or so. It's really brand new stuff. Um, in multiple disciplines is that the shape of time is U-shaped, and that's the happiness curve. The passage of time tends to reduce our life satisfaction, other things being equal, from early adulthood, you know, when we're about 20, 
to about midlife. And we'll experience typically a nadir, a bottom to this cycle at around the age of 50. It varies depending on country. And of course, individuals are different. And then time, just when we least expect it to, just when we've given up and we think, oh my God, I'm in for a lifetime of disappointment and gloom. Time turns around, it switches sides, and it goes into this reverse cycle of positive feedback where we're feeling better about life and we're positively surprised that we're feeling better because we thought, you know, we're going to decline into sadness and death. And, and those two things feed on themselves. So that's the shape of time. And that's what Thomas Cole's paintings are really about. He makes this clear. If we look hard, we see that there's an hourglass is the prominent feature of three of the paintings. So his message is, this is what time is going to do to you. And let's talk about that midlife malaise, because you said it's often about, well, like Seinfeld's show, nothing. Talk about that. Yeah. We imagine that if we're not feeling good about life, then there must be something wrong with our life something we've got to change, you know, job, marriage. In my case, it was job. When I started having this fog of disappointment that I couldn't seem to get away from, I started fantasizing about escaping, walking and quitting my job and escaping to some other whole different kind of line of work. I didn't know what. It was, it was just a fantasy, but lots of people experience that. Well, it turns out human beings are not very good at attributing the causes of our happiness and unhappiness. What I was really doing was flailing around. My rational mind was looking for a way to explain what in fact was going on just because of changes in my brain and because of my age. What I was in fact feeling, this rough, rough patch in my 40s, this was a built-in transition. Lots of people go through it. Not everybody, but lots of people. It's totally normal. But it's not about anything. It's just change. One way that we, that we have that confirms that is that the same pattern of declining happiness followed by increasing happiness for the bottom and the middle of life has turned up in chimps and orangutans. And there, you, you know pretty well it's not about anything because they don't have you know, careers and, and families and marriages and all that. So the problem is the happiness curve, age-related dissatisfaction, as, as I call it, is not really about anything. It's just something that's happening. It's like, you know, what is adolescence about? Well, you know, it's a stage, right? It's natural human development. But we make the mistake of thinking it must be about something, so we leave our marriages, we quit our job. For most people, midlife dissatisfaction, the bottom of the happiness curve, is not a crisis. It's the opposite of a crisis. It's just a long, slow slog, and we live with it and go on with our lives. It's not, it's not acute depression. It's just a big nuisance. If we misattribute it and we go out and make you know, big life mistakes based on the false idea that what we really need is to throw all the, the whole pack of cards in the air, quit our job, leave our marriage, and go off to Tahiti, well... That becomes midlife crisis. Most people don't have that, but a U-curve turns into a V-curve, this sudden sharp crash, often because we make these mistakes. So it's really important to know if you're in a midlife slump, it's probably not about you. It may not be about your life. You may need change in midlife, as at any other time of life. Change is often good, but don't be radical. 
Don't be disruptive. Don't be impulsive. Impulsivity is not your friend at this stage of life. Plan it carefully. Talk to people. Make sure it's a progressive, sensible change for you. And when we come back, more with author Jonathan Rausch. The book is The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And if you like what you hear here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And we'll send you the five best stories each week. And this is a story in the end, not only about Jonathan Rausch's uh, curve, his happiness curve, and his experience at the bottom of that curve, but all of our lives. And we all know what he's talking about. I think that so many of you are nodding and thinking, aha, that's what this was all about, this journey. When we come back, more with Jonathan Rausch. And thanks always to MyPillow.com. The folks there, well, they, they make the best pillows in America. And if you want some real happiness, a good night's sleep will get you there. Go to MyPillow.com and tell them, well, at least enter the promo code STORIES to get their very best specials. That's MyPillow.com. And again, my wife and I use them. We actually fight over whose pillow is whose. And we think we like each other's pillows more than our own. It's very strange. MyPillow.com. Real happiness is a good night's sleep. When we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch, whose own midlife unhappiness prompted him to take a deep dive into the science of happiness throughout human life. In writing his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discovered that on average, people develop higher life satisfaction later in their life, even as they're getting sick more often and can't do all the things they once did. Jonathan, in your chapter called The Paradox of Aging, we meet a 94-year-old woman named Nora who rates her life as 100% satisfied with everything. Tell us about Nora. Nora um, actually passed away since I wrote those words. She was 94, and she, I don't know if I put this in the book, but she had a cancer diagnosis at the time. And yet there she was saying it was the most fulfilling part of her life ever, even though she had some terrible losses. Her husband had died many years ago, and she had been single. Um, she'd been the caregiver for her sister who had had Alzheimer's who had died and that had been a rough patch. She was very wise and she said, these things that used to seem like they mattered so much, I'm not using her words, but she said they seem ephemeral now. People later in life feel like they no longer have anything to prove. They feel like they can focus more on the, on the most important things in life. And that's partly because their brains have changed to allow them to do that. And it's, it's very common. There's tons of evidence now, just tons, that what I saw in Nora and other people, I surveyed lots of people for my book and interviewed lots of people, that this is a, a very deep phenomenon. This is, this is really changes in our brains and values as we age that make it easier to be satisfied and easier to be wise. 
You know, you write, quote, Fortunately, the depressive realism of middle age turns out to be, well, unrealistic. Life indeed gets better, much better. Again, this is not what the culture sells us. Old age is like death in the culture. Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's all the stuff I'd wish that I could have known when I was 40. And by the time I was 50, I was so pessimistic about the future because I saw I said, that point, you know, 10 or so years of this fog of disappointment. And part of the reason I was so gloomy about the future is what you just said. You know, the story that our society says is, well, it's all downhill from here. If I had just known that if I can just wait this thing out, not make any big mistakes, that it's got a wonderful payoff. It's a transition. It's not midlife crisis. It's, it's midlife transition to a different brain and a different value set that turn out to be more rewarding. I'm textbook. I seem to be like right from central casting. My U-curve bottomed out in my late 40s, around the time I lost my parents and actually had some major setbacks in life. And I started feeling like maybe it was turning around by the time I was 51 or 52. I'm 58 now. And of course, you know, life is life, right? There's setbacks, there are disappointments, there's anger and, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's politics right now. But despite all that, I also feel gradually like I'm getting more settled. All these voices and fantasies about escape and worthlessness have, have pretty much gone. So that's, that's the real story. Some really prominent social and behavior scientist, Jonathan, came to a pretty startling conclusion in 2011. I'm going to quote again from your book. The peak of emotional life may not occur until well into the seventh decade. And you wrote right after that, the seventh decade exclamation point. Why that exclamation point? It's so counterintuitive. It's what you just said earlier, Lee. You know, we, we just imagine that by the age of 70, much less, you know, 80, that will be in sad decline. And it's, it's just not true. The emotional peak of life is much later. And you mentioned earlier that we have this idea that youth is, you know, it's a time of, of gloriousness and happiness and well, most of us have been through that period of life. And the reality about our 20s is that, that they're a time of extreme emotional volatility and great uncertainty. And that goes away later in life. You become much better at balancing emotions, at experiencing equanimity, meeting the world with a sense of perspective. Let's talk about the happiness curve and its purpose, because it's social, and it bends toward this thing called wisdom. Again, those ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they were on to something. Talk about Paul. His story was remarkable and universal. Paul is a guy who I met when I was on a speaking trip, and he was, I was driving around with him. And his story turned out to be a midlife crisis story. It does happen. He was a super motivated, high achiever ice climber, wanted to do all the hardest routes in the world and broke both his legs trying to do it and would obsess if he wasn't, you know, out there on the ice every winter, had marriage kids, and he just fell apart in his 40s. When he put himself back together, a big element is that he went out to an Indian reservation to do some teaching and saw the poverty and need out there and began to throw himself into that. And that changed his life. Well, from his perspective, he feels like 
the reservation did this to him. Really, I think the science is more like he did this to him. His brain was not receptive to doing that kind of close, social, connected work when he was younger because he was focused on personal ambition. That's how we're wired. But he became, as he aged through this crisis and beyond, he became more oriented toward helping other people and found a deeper level of satisfaction than he ever known before. And one of the things he said to me along the way was that he thought he had a better toolkit for life, which I thought was a great phrase. So I put that in my pocket and was looking at the literature on what's going on behind the happiness curve. Why would evolution want us to have this additional satisfaction later in life? And the word wisdom kept popping up. It turns out there's a science of wisdom. Wisdom is not like some folklore concept from fairy tales. It's a real thing. It's measurable. There are tests for it. There are people looking for it in brain scans. It's not the same as knowledge, expertise, skill, experience. It's certainly not the same as intelligence. It has almost zero relationship to how intelligent you are, how wise you are. But wisdom is just what Paul said. It's about having that toolkit for life. So it's wisdom is rare at any age, young or old, but we're better equipped for wisdom as we get older because wisdom is about the ability to balance competing emotions, to synthesize a lot of experience, not to fly off the handle too much, and it's especially about helping navigate complex social situations. We think that's why it exists. Tribes that have wise people tend to do better, and families that have wise people, because wise people help offer good advice about how to cope with stuff. And lastly, Jonathan, talk about faith and religious community. Many of the happiest and most satisfied among us are also people of deep faith. Does that have any relationship to the happiness curve? Faith, I think, is something largely separate. Um, the happiness curve is about the effect of time, but it's important for people to remember lots of other things affect your well-being in life. You know, for example, your health and the satisfaction you get from your job and the quality of your marriage. And yes, faith is an important element of that. So on any given day, Lee's or Jonathan's life satisfaction depends on a host of variables, and no one should think that time, the happiness curve, is the only thing going on. It's one of a lot of things going on. So by all means, faith can increase well-being, and there's a lot of documentary evidence to, to show that that's true. But it's, it's kind of a separate thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing, and I ran across it when I was doing my research. But what we need to remember is it's not the only thing going on. Your age will also affect your happiness, and it will affect your receptivity to faith and to community and stuff like the amount of and quality of volunteering that you're doing, for example, which is important in many faith communities. Indeed, and, and I'm going to end with a, a line that I think almost summarizes the book. It's just such a beautiful one. Time and aging fight happiness in midlife, then switch sides. Talk about that. That's it. It's what I it's what I just said. You know, it's time and aging are not the only thing going on. 
it's like you can walk uphill and it's harder or downhill and it's easier, but where you go depends on what direction you set and the terrain and, you know, and the distance and the weather. Lots of things go on, but it's very important to know that there is this U-shape to life and that if you're someone who is feeling that, you know, your, your midlife is a grind of disappointment and it seems like it's, it's never going to end and you don't know what to do, for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, what to do is nothing. It's not literally nothing. Reach out to other people. It's, it's better not to bottle this up. Avoid big mistakes and impulsive decisions of the time we talked about earlier. Counseling is often a good idea. These days, there's counselors know all about this, and they're not going to tell you you're depressed, you need medication, off to the, the funny farm. So, and coaching is a really good thing to do because coaching is about realigning our lives to meet our changing values. And that's especially important in middle age because that's what's really going on. So all of those things can help, but the most important thing is to understand that what's happening to you is natural, normal, healthy, nothing to be ashamed of, and it goes away. It gets better. And we're speaking with Jonathan Rausch's book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It was great to be here. Thank you. And go to Amazon.com and get The Happiness Curve. It's as good a book as I've read in a very long time. This is Lee Habib, Jonathan Rausch's story, the story of human happiness, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 